I don't know the experiences that you have had with preaching. Perhaps you are an individual that kind of looks at preaching in a negative light because maybe you had a family member who preached and they weren't treated very well by their congregation. And so you have a negative taste in your mouth. Surely, unfortunately, that does happen. Perhaps that you look at preaching as so many of us do with the fondest of memories, with all of the wonderful blessings that come from it and seeing it as a noble profession and something that needs to be held by more and more people, especially today. And as you and I think about our subject at hand, how shall they hear without a preacher? I'm reminded of our world's turning away from sound doctrine that's been taking place for several decades now. Our country did not become this way within the last 10 years, within the last 20 or even the last 30. It has been building toward that because at one point someone and then their neighbors and their communities and then even churches started to say, well, maybe the Bible doesn't really mean that when it says that. And when that started to happen, Elders, deacons, and even preachers began to say the same things. Our world is much like what we find in 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, having itching ears and turning aside to false doctrine to be pleased, to have our needs satisfied instead of the needs of the Savior. We want to be glorified, it seems, instead of glorifying God. And so today our text at hand is Romans chapter 10 and verse 14, and we need to look at the purpose of preaching in the first place to find out why it's so important for a gospel preacher to be on this earth and why we need so many of them. And I'd like to set the stage a little bit here by talking about something that perhaps you've seen on YouTube or television. I've never really seen it on television. I only find it on YouTube or Facebook, but there is a popular program where people are gathered together in an auditorium and someone is assigned to speak on a topic. It's called a TED Talk. And that conversation that is had between the speaker and the audience is usually about some type of subject that is trying to give the audience a better view on how to tackle X, Y, or Z. Uh, one of the most uh, memorable ones that I've seen is by someone who says that he is a procrastinator. And he talked about what it means for him when he's given an assignment to try to accomplish getting that thing completed and how difficult it is. He says he feels like he's at a ship without a sail. And then all of a sudden he says, but what if I was in a boat instead of a ship? What if I was in a car instead of a boat? And he says, and now you see my problem. And the whole time that he's speaking, you can hear a pin drop. Everybody is hanging on every single word because they want to get just one little drop of information that they can then take and say, that will make me better at tackling that subject. And in truth, when you and I think about preaching the gospel, it's no different. We seek to stand in a pulpit and give guidelines on how to tackle a subject, whether it be the ability to show love to our brethren or to the community, or whether it needs to be something that has to be corrected because the scriptures teach that it's sinful we stand in a pulpit and we give guidelines on how to handle that subject. But we're not as popular as TED Talks. We don't have the same audience showing up to the sermons and to the assemblies at times because they deem what we have in this world, it looks at it as worthless. 
won't profit me anything. It won't get me anywhere. I would rather learn how to be more efficient in the home and cleaning my house and listen to somebody talk about that than learn how to get to heaven. We wonder why our world is so messed up. We wonder why we're going down the path that we're going. It really shouldn't be all that surprising. And so we've got these guidelines that we have to give because you and I need to understand that proclaiming the gospel is not just simply getting up, looking well-dressed, and saying some things that are going to give people a positive message or even something that is a call to action, and then we all go home and try to beat the lunch crowd. That's not what preaching is. Preaching is the most important profession that any man could have. And for a long time, I did not believe that. As a little boy, I said it because I thought I needed to. And then I grew up and I thought, I, I can't be a preacher. I'll be a sports commentator. And then in high school, I began to do some research on that subject of what you had to do. And I realized if you're not a player or one of the most skilled journalists ever, you're probably not going to be a commentator someday on the sports talk shows. And one day it finally hit me. Why am I so concerned with wanting to talk about sports when I can talk about the Bible a whole lot easier? Why am I so concerned with being involved with secular work when I can embark onto the work that will change lives, not because of me, but because of the power of the gospel? And it was a privilege to serve in local work for five years. It's a privilege now to be seeking more men to serve as gospel preachers because in truth, there is no greater profession. This is it. And the purpose of preaching is found in our text takeaways. If you'll look at Romans chapter 10 and verses 5 through 12, as I'm speaking to you about the subject, be reading over those verses. I want you to notice that God knew from the beginning, before the foundation of the world, Revelation 13, 8, that man would mess up and need a savior which gives me a whole bigger understanding when I read in Genesis 3 that God tells the serpent, I will put very, very big hurt upon you. That's the MJC version. I'm going to hurt you. You might bite the heel, but the heel is going to stomp your head into the ground. God knew that Jesus would be a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And when I read through the Old Testament now, I have a greater understanding of that because he didn't do this overnight. He could have. He could have within a moment just said, okay, that's it. Sins are forgiven. I don't think humans would understand the seriousness of sin if he had just done that, though. I think he understood that about us. And so he began to embark on this journey that we find through the Old Testament where he gave a law. And the law, according to Romans 10, 5 through 12, as well as even Romans chapter 7, was a law that man couldn't keep. Not because the law had a problem with it, but because man has a problem with himself. He is not a perfect person. He cannot be a perfect person. He's a sinner. He stumbles. He falls short. And he needs hope and salvation and so when you and I hear a gospel sermon preached, and as a gospel preacher, when we preach a sermon, we preach, and the whole time we are praying for somebody in the audience that morning to make that good confession. If I write a lesson and it is not intended to try to bring someone to Christ, 
I'm not really sure what I'm preaching. I'm not really sure what I'm trying to accomplish there. If the end result of what I'm saying and what I'm doing and what I'm studying and then outlining and presenting does not at least give people the opportunity to know there is a God, he has a plan, and you need to follow it, then I have not preached a gospel sermon. We preach Christ. We put him at the forefront, and we pray that people will see him as we see him in the text, and that they will say, that is who I need to follow. That's who I serve. That's who I need to live for with the rest of my life, and I need to tell others about him. You know, we find in Romans chapter 10 and verses 9 through 12, the idea of preaching being a serious task and then finding in verse 14 that not only is confession necessary, but how will they hear? How can you even confess if they don't have a preacher? Our religious world has taken this text and they have absolutely abused it. Romans 10, 9 and 10. And they've tried to force a puzzle piece into a puzzle that doesn't belong. I remember years ago, my grandmother... She loved doing puzzles at the kitchen table, and she had this very large piece puzzle that she was putting together. It might have been five or a thousand pieces for all I know. It was a long time for her to finish that. And she got to the last piece, and you know what happened? She couldn't find it. <laughs> it was gone. To this day, I have no idea where that piece went because she opened the box brand new. So it's not like she had done the puzzle before and somehow putting the pieces back together might have missed one. No, from the time she opened it, a piece got lost, and you know what? That puzzle was incomplete. You know what she didn't do? She didn't say, Michael, go get that other puzzle, and I'll just take a piece and we'll shove it in there and just see how it looks. She was devastated because she'd worked all this time and one little piece missing if you and I make Romans 10 verses 5 through 14 only about salvation and confession, we have missed the point. You know, you and I know right now that confession, I know that you believe this, is not the only thing that you have to do. But our world says, but that's what the text says. What do you have to do to go get gas? You first have to get in your car and do what? You got to drive to the gas station. And then magically the gas is just put in your car because you showed up at the gas station, right? Well, you got to get out of the car. You got to go to the pump and now you got to pay and you got to cringe as you see the price. And then you got to take the pump and select your gas and open your tank and put the pump into the tank and begin to pump the gas. And then you have to wait for the gas to be finished pumping. And then you have successfully put gas into your car. How many steps did it take for you to simply go get gas? And we can understand that logical premise. But not that when Paul writes in Romans 10, 9, and 10 that confession is necessary, that he's not, you know, basically saying, I know what we've been teaching all throughout Acts and all throughout the beginning of the church, that it is a five-step process that all comes together. But I'm going to give you a little bit of a different side now. I know I was saved differently, but now it, it's about this. That's not how it works. And we've taken confession and we've argued about what it means in Romans 10, 9, and 10 when in reality, 
It really seems to be more about we're praying that people in the audience, people that are listening, would confess Jesus that would lead them to the rest of the steps needed to become saved. And preaching is such a serious task. I grew up in a preacher's home, blessed to travel all over the world and see different people and meet different congregations and elders and preachers and I then came to the Memphis School of Preaching as a student and sat at the feet of great men. And I'm envious of our students now who get to sit at the feet of men that were not teaching when I was in school. And I'm envious of the men who got to sit at the feet of Brother Curtis Cates and other great men that we know that have gone on to their reward. I look at those preachers and I have a lot of respect for them. And it can be easy in a week like this to get caught up in what we might call the lectureship haze, where we see such a great lineup of so many speakers that we believe in the brotherhood are some of the top-notch speakers that we have that can truly preach the Word of God and give it to the people in the most simplest of ways. And it can also be that someone may look at that and think, if I want to be somebody, I need to become a preacher. That's not a wise conclusion to make. Preaching is not to make a name. I wish that we could simply just say tonight we have a Christian preaching. We're not going to do that, of course. That'd get quite confusing after a little bit of time, especially at a lectureship, wouldn't it? And so, yes, there is some name recognition to it because you have a name, and that name's going to be said to people but from the moment I stepped into this pulpit, it ceased to be about me and it became completely about him. The moment we step into this room, into any type of assembly where we're talking about God, it cannot be about me. It has to be about him. And if I'm going to embark on gospel preaching, I cannot do it simply looking at other men that have become well-known because of the work that they've done and say, that's what I have to do to be successful that's what I need to do in order to be a gospel preacher. I need to be famous. That's not going to end well for you. James would caution teachers in James 3 and verse 1 to not be in plurality because they receive a stricter judgment. Not everybody should be a teacher. And what a shame it is that so many people, they know it, they can say it, but they don't live it. And James is trying to caution people, don't get into the teaching business just to teach if you're not ready to receive a stricter judgment for it. This is a serious task. How will they hear without a preacher? How will someone know that they need to obey the gospel if someone doesn't teach the gospel to them? How will they know that they need to call upon the name of the Lord and then by through obedience and baptism become a child of God if someone doesn't tell them? The Ethiopian eunuch is one of the greatest examples to showcase this because when Philip asked him, do you understand what you're reading? The eunuch said, how can I unless somebody guides me? I need somebody to tell me what this means. And I can honestly tell you, the first day of MSOP, I sat down, I was a wraparound, started in January and ended in January. 
If you're a wraparound, you know that that's not necessarily the easiest of times to come into school. And I remember sitting down, we got all of our syllabi, and I looked at some of my fellow classmates, and they were going, how are we going to get all this done? And I thought, what have I done? <laughs> what did I get myself into? And then I began to listen as Brother Mosier and Brother Elkins and all of these great men began to show me what the scriptures meant, and it felt like sometimes my head hurt. There is so much in this book that I know now because I sat at the feet of men who spent years studying it. And there are so many people outside these walls and outside the church that don't know that stuff. And how will they know it unless somebody guides them? We must take it to the people. There is such an important task in preaching and it is not to be taken lightly. How shall they hear without a preacher? And you know, elderships and deacons and members and congregations do have a responsibility for being able to sniff out error. But even the greatest of congregations can be duped into following after something that they shouldn't. I think that sounds like Galatians 3.1, doesn't it? Foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you into following after this other gospel? And in fact, Paul delivers a death blow to their mindset because he says, you say that you are the seed of Abraham? Oh, no, 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 you're Hagar's children. You don't have an inheritance, Galatians 4, 21 through 31. You continue this way, you're gonna be cut off. And how did that happen? Somebody got in and started telling people, don't do this, do this. And nobody stopped him. And so we know that can still happen today, and it does. If you were to get onto YouTube right now and do a simple Google search of the name Kenneth Copeland, you would find hundreds of videos that have garnered in total millions of views. And it's not the gospel. And you read some of the comments and your heart should break because there are people out there believing that that is the truth. How shall they hear without a preacher? Preaching is such a serious task, but it's also something that we need to think about. Sound preaching does not always guarantee success as our world looks at success. How do we judge a, a movie by its success? How well does it do at the box office? Or a best-selling novel has to be best-selling to be called that. And in fact, people who have become a novelist are only able to be called a novelist if they've written a novel and they continue to have that novel be so well that it's, hey, that's a writer, that's someone you need to read, you need to be looking at their work. I read recently Mary Higgins Clark, you might know the name, she wrote books for years, at the time of her death had a $140 million net worth. Pretty successful writer. What if her first book was awful? Didn't get published? And what if nobody would pick her up at that point? Nobody'd know her name. She wouldn't go down in history as a successful author. We deem successful restaurants by how well they do by the amount of money they make versus the amount of money they owe. And then sometimes we look and we try to put preaching into the same mindset. How many people have you brought forth? How many people are Christians because of your preaching? You know, Jesus preached for three years and is widely considered 
if not completely considered to be the greatest minister that's ever walked the earth. We know that he is. Anybody that would disagree with that needs to have a little bit of a history lesson and a biblical lesson. And Jesus was so successful, wasn't he? The people loved him. They all followed him. Nobody ever had a bad word to say about him. Jesus walked around and everybody just said, let's all go follow him. No, John 6, verse 66 tells me what John 6, 41 through 65 was leading up to. At that time, many of his disciples, not the people that were just there listening, people who had been following him, many of them did what? They turned and walked with him no more. And we find in 1 Peter 3, 20 and 21, you think about Noah. How successful was Noah? Only eight souls made it onto the ark. Even though we find in 2 Peter 2, 5 that Noah preached for 120 years. Countless apostles, disciples, prophets, Christians have preached the gospel and nobody's come forward to it. Were they all unsuccessful? By the world standards, they'd tell you yes. But I love what Brother McCoy said in his chapel speech this morning. We are successful the moment we open our mouths to share the gospel. That's what it's all about. And sound preaching will not guarantee you the success that maybe the world tells you that you should have or the things that you want to see because, honestly, you can go home some Sundays and think, did anybody hear me? That one brother that the elders asked me to preach a sermon on this subject because he needed to hear it, the devil told him to go take a vacation, apparently, because he's not here. Now what? I've wasted that sermon on him. He's not even there to hear it. He's gone. And you go home and you wonder, am I doing anything? Am I making a difference? Noah made a difference. Because for 120 years, people had the chance Jesus made a difference because every day people had the opportunity and the chance to follow him. It's not their fault that they didn't listen. And if you and I will get up and show people Christ and show them the book and nobody follows, that's not my fault and it's not yours either. I won't have a better success rate than the Lord, will I? Will you? Preaching, as we look at it, may not guarantee the success that you think it should, but you're successful. And I want to shift now in the second place this morning to talk about the power of preaching like Jesus. If he is the master teacher, and he is, and he's the minister that all of us should pattern ourselves after, then what should we be doing we should be preaching and living like he did. But I want to ask you a question, and I wish I didn't have to ask it, but unfortunately it needs to be asked. What if Jesus treated preaching like so many of our preachers today do at times? What if Jesus came to earth and completely said, you must respect me, you must revere me because I'm going to be your ruler while on earth? Is that what Jesus' mission was? Was he trying to become so popular with the people that they would all listen and respect him and that he would be a people pleaser so that he would have a mass amount of following? No. In fact, at one point, they tried to take him by force to be king. And he said, I'm not doing that. And even when he was faced with death, he tells Pilate, my kingdom's not of this world. 
I'm not here to be an earthly king. Sometimes, in some cases, with some ministers, that's kind of what it seems like. Look at what I did. Look at what I'm doing. What a blessing it is to be known by this person who I love so dearly, and I've known them for so many years, and they love me. So what? I don't recall Jesus saying anything like that during his ministry. I don't recall Jesus going over to people and telling them over and over again all of the things that he had accomplished. And we'll say more on that in just a moment. But it seems at times we've seen a shift in preaching to make it more about the messenger and not as much about the message. And I do think that social media is a part of that. We're so desiring to share good news that we don't necessarily stop to think about how we're wording some things. Maybe the next time before you or I hit post, we should go back and read all those possessive words that we use there. I, 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 me, me, me. Where's him? Where's he? It's not about me. It can't be about me. Jesus did not make it about himself when he was on the earth. In fact, Jesus said, the Father's the one who sent me. On all of the verses that are on the screen, Jesus would point people time and time again, look to the Father, look to the Father. Yes, I'll draw all men unto me, but that's because I'm the only one that can do that. I can't draw all men unto me. Michael Clark can't do that. You can't do that. No man on this earth can do that. Only Jesus could do that. And so when he says that, it's not an arrogant statement. It's just the truth. We cannot have our preachers looking at ministry as all about them because Jesus didn't do that. And so what if our preachers started trying to see ministry like Jesus sees it? What would happen? What do you think would take place? I mentioned a moment ago that Jesus never bragged about his accomplishments. I don't recall a single scripture where Jesus went to his disciples and said, guess what I told the Pharisees and the Sadducees today? You're not going to believe this. I got them. Oh, they thought they had me. And then I told them this. Or you know what? I was just taken. This woman was brought to me who had been caught in adultery in the very act. And they were all asking me to pronounce judgment upon her according to the law. I didn't even look up at them. Oh, I showed them. And I scribbled some things on the ground and I said, he that's without sin cast the first stone. And you know what happened? Everybody left. I did that. Or did you know that somebody came to me by night and called me good teacher? I'm loved. I'm respected. Mm -mm. Not a single moment do I find Jesus. Even when Nicodemus says, good teacher, Jesus says, why are you calling me that? You ready to admit what that means? You can't just say the words as if it's some flattering thing. If you're going to call me good teacher, that means you're ready to follow me. Jesus never made it about his accomplishments. And when you talk about a superhero story where it's all about this particular character, Clark Kent, Peter Parker, Bruce Wayne, they are always the hero of the story. 
I submit to you that every single one of those characters, the inspiration for having a hero like that comes from Jesus, who is the ultimate hero because he saved everybody. So much money can be made at the box office right now watching fictitious heroes fight against some type of fictitious army and villain. There's nothing wrong with enjoying some good, clean fun when it's there. But we enjoy that and we make that kind of be the litmus test and yet Jesus is the whole savior of the world. He really did it. It's not a comic book. It's not something that I close the book and then think, well, maybe they'll make another issue of it. Maybe they'll release another story. Savior of the world. If I start to see preaching like Jesus, I would realize, and so would all of us, that the scope of our work goes beyond recognition. Does Jesus know you? I know he loves you, but does he know you? Matthew 7, 21 through 23 gives one of the most haunting pictures of the judgment day where people are standing before Jesus and saying, we've done many wonderful works in your name. And Jesus says, I have no clue who you are. I don't know you. If I die today and I go down into a grave that is unmarked and no one ever knows what I've done, what I've accomplished on earth, no one ever knows that I existed it won't matter because Jesus knows me. And when I start to see that as the sole purpose of my preaching, to make sure that Jesus knows me, but also that others know him, I will see ministry like Jesus saw it. But also, when I think about seeing ministry like Jesus, we would see souls and not just some pat on the back. I thought it was interesting when I studied about this that we find in Acts chapter 8 and verse 39 and 40, and I'd like you to turn there for just a moment. We mentioned the Ethiopian eunuch earlier and how he said, how can I understand except some man should guide me? And so Philip opened the scripture that was being read and considered, and he preached Jesus to him. And the natural progression came to be that they passed by a body of water. And the eunuch said, here's water. What, what keeps me from being baptized? Who's going to stop me? I know that's what I have to do. And so they both go down into the water, and they rise up out of the water. Now notice Acts 8, 39. When they came up out of the water, the way the Bible says it is it's almost immediate. The Spirit of the Lord caught Peter up and took him away. You go preach somewhere else now, Philip. It's the eunuch who stayed behind rejoicing and telling everybody what had happened. In fact, in verse 40, we get an even better picture of this because we're told passing through, Philip continued to preach in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. I thought he had to stop off and tell everybody what he'd just done. thought he had to go by to the local area and the local church and let them know what he had just accomplished. Uh, the Spirit says, you go keep preaching. Philip just said, okay, I'm going to go keep preaching. Even Paul, who we would consider to be one of the greatest writers of the New Testament, one of the greatest contributors to what we understand about Christianity through his pen and the inspiration of the Spirit, would say of himself, I am the least of all the apostles. 
I am the chief of sinners. I am not worthy for what I've got. No patting on the back. The only time you really read Paul patting himself on the back is when he says, I fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. I finished my course. And now there's that crown waiting for me. I'm ready to go. If I see preaching like Jesus sees preaching, that will take over my life and the world can be turned right side up again. In Acts chapter 8, I find it amazing to find that all these Christians are being persecuted and scattered throughout. And Acts 8, 4 says, Therefore those that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. If you know me well enough, you know that I'm a big Steelers fan. Don't judge me on that. We're going through a rough offseason, okay? Do you know how the Steelers became one of the more popular teams, though? You know the history behind that? Years before, just maybe five years before, they became a Super Bowl-winning team. The local steel mill that was in Pittsburgh had to shut down. And it scattered all these steel workers throughout the country. And all of a sudden, all throughout the country, you started seeing Steelers fans popping up like weeds. And they're not shy about telling you that they like their team either. I know I'm not. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. They weren't shy about the very gospel that almost got them killed, that almost got them persecuted. They continued doing it. Though they were scattered, they said that's not an excuse to not preach the gospel. That's counting the cost. Understanding like Jesus did that by preaching the gospel, giving the saving message, I'm going to die. And all of those in Acts 8, they said, we're willing to die too. And today, though we don't face persecution like they did, maybe we will at some point. We should have the same mindset, even if persecution to that degree comes back to this country. I should be ready and willing to die for the gospel. Now, as we begin to bring this to a close, I want to give you my third point here, which is the priority of preaching. Our world needs preachers. We can see the evidence of that. The world needs preachers so badly to spread the true message of salvation, not some feel-good gospel that if you send us a donation of seed money, God's going to bring a harvest tenfold. You can find that channel on every hotel TV that you go and stay in. And unfortunately, there are many people out there that say, yep, I'm going to do that. Have you ever gotten a call that says the Social Security Administration is contacting you to tell you that your account has been hacked? Press 1 to speak to a representative. Press 2 to be placed on our do not call list. I always press 1. It's too much fun. And I talk to the person and they say, yes, do you understand what's happening? I understand I've lost all my money. Because all I had was in Social Security and I don't have a dime left. And the click, they hung up. I wonder why. They just want my money. They're trying to scam me. 
But you know, unfortunately, there have been sweet people who have picked up that phone and believed it, and they've sent anything that they've asked to send. Duped. Bamboozled. And right now, there are so many gospels out there. It's the same thing. Oh, no, 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 you don't have to do that. No, no, that, that's how we used to see that passage. It's really this way now. No, no, our world needs preachers, men that will stand in the gap, people who will plant their feet and stand tall and tell the world, you move back. I'm not yielding. I want to give you some encouragement as we close, though. And if you'll permit me, I want to give you 10 reasons why you can be a preacher. If you're a gentleman out there that is desiring to preach, these are reasons why you can do it. Number one, there are billions of souls at stake. We are rapidly approaching adding another billion to our number. We're getting close to 8 billion souls. And every one of them need the gospel. Every one of them need to hear. They need to know. And it is so much easier today to spread the gospel than it was 60 years ago. Because I can sit down in my easy chair and take my phone out and go live and tell people about the message. I can send an email. I can send a text message. I can call somebody on the other end of the world. I don't even have to pay. There are some apps out there that let you do that for free. There are billions of souls at stake. They need a preacher. Number two, churches need sound doctrine. Church isn't going to be sound by accident. I want you to think for a moment, if you had a youth group growing up, how are they doing? The harsh reality that we sometimes see with church youth groups is that they grow up, and in a lot of cases, not everyone stays faithful. And what was once a source of comfort and encouragement now is frustration to look upon the old pictures and see that was when they were faithful. They're not anymore. Churches are not sound by accident. Not every eldership is good. Not every membership will do what needs to be done. And so they need someone to stand up and tell them. We called it moving sermons. Brother Mosier said that, and he also said, don't quote me from your notes. I got that from my 1 Corinthians notes. Um, you preach a moving sermon, you better have your bags packed. Every sermon Jesus preached was a moving sermon because it was moving him closer to his death. And he never shied away from teaching the truth, nor should we. If I get fired, do I really think God won't have my back? Churches need sound doctrine and you get to share God's love, number three, on a daily basis. It's not just from the pulpit. People call you when their babies are born. They call you when their loved ones died. They call you when grandpa and grandma get sick. And when they unexpectedly have to go through surgery, you're one of the first calls they make. That's love. Daily basis. Number four, Churches have the responsibility to train preachers. I stand before you today as a product of fifth Sunday services that happened at my local congregation growing up in South Haven, Mississippi that helped train me to want to preach. I stand before you as a proud product even of foundations. 
a preacher training camp we have here every year that trained me even further with a desire to want to be a gospel preacher. But to be honest, I'm most proud of the churches that supported me when I went through school that gave me the chance to really learn how to preach. Responsibility to train preachers. Number five, false teaching is rampant. It's really not a surprise. We had a dog named Dodger. He passed last year. He got real sick. We had to put him down. But Dodger used to sit at the foot of the chair, and he would lean his head back. And what he meant by that was, uh, my ears need some attention. So we'd begin to scratch his ears. And if we needed to check a phone message or do something else and we removed that hand, that dog would turn so fast and look at you like, uh, hello, we were busy, uh, sir. You need to get back to business here. That is the mindset of so many people today when it comes to doctrine. Yes, tell me the good stuff. Tell me the good stuff. You need to be more faithful to the Lord. Hey, you better stop that. We need people that are more intentional, people that will show up, people that will work. Uh-uh, you better quit it. False doctrine is rampant, and it is itching our ears and making us want to follow after it more and more, and we need preachers to stand up and tell people, no, that's not right. Number six, the devil's after souls too. That's not a surprise. And number seven, the roster needs to remain full. I want to tell you this real quick. You know, over the past 19 years, the Green Bay Packers have had one of the most impressive stats in all of football. Outside of preseason games and the ever often, you know, ever so often injury that would occur, they have had exactly two starting quarterbacks. I hope there are no Browns or Texans fans in here because I'm about to make you mad, but if you compare that to the Cleveland Browns, who since 1999 have had 29, the book says 28. You know why? When I wrote this, it was 28. Two weeks ago, they traded for their 29th. They've had 29 quarterbacks since 1999. And the Houston Texans have only been a team since 2002. They've had 17. And they're going on almost averaging, replacing a quarterback a year. And yet you look at Green Bay and there's been this consistency. No worry about who the quarterback is. Look at our preachers right now that you look up to and respect. 20 years, where will they be? 20 years, where will you be? Will you be standing behind a pulpit preaching and telling people, like we heard yesterday from Brother Liddell, I think you'd make a fine preacher. We need to keep the roster full. We can't lose people. Number eight, it's about the message, not the messenger. We've made that clear, the whole message. Number nine, God commands all men everywhere to repent, and you need to tell them that, and I need to tell them that. Number 10, how will they hear without you? The eunuch said, how can I? Except some man should guide me. How will I know without a preacher? I'll say this on Brother Liddell. When I was in school and I heard these words, I didn't like it. You can do it, brother. You can do it. And I kept thinking, how about you come do it for a little bit, please? Because I'm tired. I look back on those words now and they're some of the fondest words that I've ever heard during my time in school. You can do it, brother. And I stand before you today having been told that over and over again by Brother Liddell 
as someone who's going to tell you to, you can preach. You can preach. You don't have to be dynamic. You don't have to be well-worded. Just show them Jesus. The Bible says, sir, we would see Jesus. And that's what we need to be showing people today as well. Thank you.